1: Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Wine, coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available.
2: You're listening to Muses and Stuff the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind the scene characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history,
3: we are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx.
2: Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show.
3: This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine. Bringing you the best in
2: collectibles, movies, music, wrestling, gaming, and more. Check it out at electrifiedporcupine.com. Hi, Legs. Hey. I'm so happy that we're doing this. It's been a while. It's been a while. Today, we it's not an interview. We're going back to our roots. We are presenting an episode today, and yeah. uh, we were both talking about, even though we love doing the interviews, and I think it really shows how much this podcast has connected us to people, mm-hmm. and how it's really been this opportunity to connect with people, share each other's stories, and so on. We miss doing what yeah. we really, really love. At and the core of it, this the is it.
3: the special, like very special moments, just us two sitting here. That's right. Telling a story. Yeah. Nice to get back to our roots.
2: Yeah. And we'll be continuing to tell these stories in the next uh, coming weeks as well, yes. as well as peppering some interviews in here and there. So we've got lots of great stuff coming up. And Lots. Thank yeah. you,
3: everybody, for listening and your continued support. We love Absolutely. you. And today's really special. It's one of my sort of childhood Idols. I I loved Edie Sedgwick so much growing up. She's just such a vision of the 60s and such an important part of that scene. And yeah, not a lot of people know about her, more should. She definitely has a tragic story. This isn't going to be like the lightest of stories but we're coming back
2: with a <laughs> pretty heavy story but what I think is so interesting about this is that um, I know you posted a picture of Edie not too long ago on our Instagram mm-hmm. and a lot of people were just like she's my favorite I love her Yeah. so a lot of people that really really love her already know the story but I think are still gonna love the episode and then people like me who know nothing about her like I haven't even seen the movie um, Factory Dr. Girl Yeah. so I, I'm really coming from nothing here that's and great I
3: cannot wait I'm just like sitting back here waiting for a story that's perfect because other people who maybe only know her from Factory Girl, that's not her story. That's very much her her personality. I think uh, Sienna Miller did a great job capturing Edie, but they they took like. They took things that happened to her and switched them up. It's not her That's real... That's e- That happens exactly. a lot. Exactly. So, yeah, if you only know Edie from Factory Girl, I'm going to set some facts straight. And, you know, next time you can watch it, like, you know, but knowing the facts... Uh, I still appreciate the movie. I still watch it here and there. But, yeah, knowing the facts is good. So, I'm going to start telling you that Edie Sedgwick was born on April 20th, 1943. Uh... A lot of people, yeah, know her from Factory Girl. The first line in Factory Girl says that her great-great-grandfather was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Right out the bat, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's true that he could have been. He was definitely part of that group. Uh, he was colleagues with these men. Um, they were a very influential family. The Sedgwicks, she came from... Roots that went back in history in American history, they were a very important family. Uh, and roots are very important in this uh, in her story. Um, Edie's father, or I should go I should go back a little earlier before Edie's father, you can trace mental illness um, in Edie's family for like generations. Mm. And of course, the further you go back, the scarier that is because they didn't understand what that meant yet, right? Um, But at the same time, the Sedgwicks were very much uh, political men and Harvard men. All of them went to Harvard. They all had grand careers. So that's really interesting as well. Edie's father, his name was Francis, he really struggled living up to the Sedgwick name all his life. He was the runt of the family kind of sickly throughout his childhood. And his mother kind of took her frustrations out on him over time. Uh, his mother lost her sight and soon her, her mind started to go as well. And when Francis's brother died at 17 years old, his mom just, she was, that was the straw. Yeah. And she died shortly after that as well. And from both of these things Francis ended up having his first nervous breakdown so he recovered and he sort of followed the Sedgwick model and ended up at Harvard and the Sedgwick's were always a very athletic bunch at Harvard so he really tried his best to get into athletics but he really didn't share the same strength of his ancestors and that was also like a huge embarrassment to him so and it's when um Especially
2: in that time when men were embarrassed. Exactly. There was that huge ego thing. Absolutely. You know, and then having that failure complex. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's not so good. he's,
3: he's dealing with a lot of that. After school, he went into banking and finance and he was living in London for a time, but something happened there. He ended up having another breakdown and he needed a place to convalesce, and he called on an old friend of his named Charles DeForest, and his family had a place in the English countryside, so he went there, and he ended up falling in love with Charles's younger sister, Alice, so on May, 20, or on May 9th, 1929, they were married. Uh, before the wedding, Francis had another stay in a hospital, and at the hospital, he told the doctors, you know, I'm, I'm going to get married soon, and the doctors actually advised them you shouldn't have children this is you know genetic here like this is a issue now you're aware of it um was he ever officially diagnosed with something did he have um i'm not sure uh they don't go into detail i'm not really sure how they diagnosed things back then right but in the 20s yeah hmm. um either way he was kind of warned about that uh and of course this means that alice was knocked up like right away right of course yeah so they ended up having a kid almost every like one almost every two years uh there was saucy bobby pamela minty jonathan kate then came edie and then finally suki Oh my goodness! A lot so, of children, yeah, and some... it, it became a badge of honor for him. He definitely had the most kids of all of his Harvard classmates, and he really bragged about it. Like, look at what a man I am! Look at all these children I can produce. So that sort of became his way of showing up. Like, I'm not athletic, but like, look at I'm a man. Can you repeat those names one more time? Absolutely. Saucy, Bobby, Pamela, Minty, Jonathan, Kate, Edie, and Suki. Okay, Saucy and Minty are my (laughs) favorite. Yeah. They... One thing that Francis uh, did, he really liked pet names and things like that. And interestingly, he actually got his kids... He didn't want them to call him dad. And that's another interesting thing. So, they grew up calling him Fuzzy. So... (laughs) I'm going to call him Fuzzy from now on. Okay. I don't know how to feel about that, <laughs> but I'm going to go with it. So Fuzzy went back to Harvard for business before realizing a regular career was really never in the cards for him. Lucky for him, Alice had a fortune and for many years, he, they lived off her money. Uh, I don't think he, he liked that though. Doctors really encouraged his artistic side, and he ended up being a really successful sculptor. But the shame of not living up to the Sedgwick line really never left him. Uh, In adulthood, uh, Fuzzy became obsessed with looks. Uh, He was really well-known. The whole Sedgwick family was well-known for being gorgeous. They are all beautiful. If you look them up, they are just all beautiful. There's no other word for it. He exercised every day. He really needed to be that perfect specimen of the healthy, strong, like virile man, right? So the Sedgwicks lived in Long Island until they officially moved to Santa Barbara. That's where the final few kids, including Edie, was born. They lived on a big ranch, one that would they would discover oil on, which gave Fuzzy his own money, which helped him kind of uh, break away from feeling guilt of living off his wife
2: okay but he technically didn't really earn that either didn't he just get lucky
3: (laughs) yeah fuzzy got lucky uh after they found the oil they moved to even greater ranch in santa Barbara. uh the property scanned from horizon to horizon and It sort of reads like a fairy tale lifestyle, like they didn't really work. It was tennis and horseback riding in the afternoon and intellectual conversations at dinner and except really it was like far from a fairy tale. Uh, The kids were very much props to Fuzzy. He didn't want him to call him dad. He would kind of bring them out at parties and, you know, look at all my kids, like look at what I've done and... The kids are really raised by their nannies, but uh, their mother wasn't as awful as Fuzzy was in that sense. Uh, but she was... A- Fuzzy
2: wasn't awful, was he? Yes, he was. <laughs> uh,
3: of course, their mother, though, was of the era where wives didn't really have a voice in how things were run in the household and things like that. So Edie's childhood was interesting. All of her siblings say she was absolutely spoiled. Uh, She tended to get her way, and she had a stubbornness that wore down people. Uh, By 14 months, most of the Sedgwick kids were riding horses, and Edie was no different. They would become a passion for her. Edie's world was that ranch. They were homeschooled. They rarely left the property. She didn't have any friends outside of her older siblings. But she was an adventurer. She really loved the outdoors. She loved riding. By the time Edie was born... The the family was pretty broken up. Fuzzy was an adulterer, and uh, as the years progressed, so did his affairs. Uh, He'd do it not only in front of their mother, but in front of guests they had over. Alice, their Edie's mom, she kind of chose to ignore it. She pretended she would be sick, and she'd stay home to avoid situations, and she sort of became a shut-in because of it. Uh, The kids were witness to all of this, and Edie, by the time she was around 10 years old, she was really the only one who ever vocalized her disgust to her father. She was always the only one who stood up to him, and her brother Jonathan said, I always thought Edie wanted to escape on her horse, but she couldn't get off the ranch. She was penned in. Usually, it started with a battle with my father. She always felt that he would come and get her. So she could only run away on the ranch. She would disappear into the mountains, and you never know where she was. Then she'd come back mellowed out. So Edie is really trying to, you know, deal with this world that's her only world. But as they got older, into their teen years, each of the Cedric children were kind of shipped off to a boarding school. So Edie was sent to one at 13. She really hated it. She was pulled out after a while, probably due to an eating disorder. She was sort of anorexic at this point. At what age? 13. Oh, wow. That's really young. Yeah. And bulimic. Oh, that's man, that's really young. Yeah. So Edie's home now, dealing with this. And she walks in on Fuzzy, sleeping with another woman. Gross. Yes. Fuzzy decided to deal with this by having a doctor come to their house drug edie to make sure no one would believe her story and then he shipped her off to another school like further away no comment
2: just a real disgusted look on my face yes
3: so lucky for her though at this school she did sort of blossom she became class president she was really the envy of her classmates the most popular girl but being a teen, she kind of hit a rebellion stage as well, and she only re- attended that place for a year. Uh, it it does seem that Edie was Fuzzy's favorite child in a way, as she got away with so much more than the rest. But that did not mean that she wasn't also in a bad place. Uh, in Factory Girl, the, the, in the film, they say they flat out say that Edie was molested by Fuzzy. In tapes she later made for her film, Chow Manhattan, she talks about how since she was seven, her father gave her a lot of physical attention and that she did say he wanted to sleep with her, but she resisted. But she also said that her older brother tried something on her before as well, but took no for an answer. So how much these things affected her mental health is anyone's guess, and whether It went further than that is also anyone's guess, right? Right. When she was around 17, as a way to not deal with other, you know, certain issues. Okay, yeah, sorry.
2: I think that just took me a second to just sink in.
3: Yeah. Because
2: a part of you thinks like, oh, you know what? Good if nothing happened and they took no for an answer. But just the mere fact of having it in your realm of knowledge exactly. that your father and your brother have expressed yeah interest yeah in that capacity yes can totally and would totally mess with you mentally absolutely regardless if anything happened exactly. or not okay thank yeah. you
3: so Move on i can i think we could say for certain it affected her it's yeah. just what like how how much and exactly what happened she's never that's as much as Edie herself has ever said about it okay When she was around 17, Fuzzy sent Edie to Silver Hill. This was a mental hospital where her brother, Minty, her older brother, had previously stayed. So Minty was the most sensitive in the family. And Minty was the one Edie was closest to of her siblings. Uh, Because he was most sensitive, that meant that Fuzzy was the hardest on him. I think Fuzzy saw a lot of himself in Minty, maybe. Um, Artistic, not an athlete. Fuzzy must have, you know, kind of seen everything he hated in himself and put unbelievable pressure on him to be like a real man, you know, whatever that meant to Fuzzy. Uh, So while attending Harvard, just like his dad, he had to leave and he ended up being committed at Payne Whitney and later Silver Hill. So Silverhill was more casual. I don't want to call it like a country club, but like as far as, you know, mental institutions go, it was, you know, rich people went. It was more like get yourself together type of place. The rules were very lax and well, it would have been a good opportunity to get her help with her eating disorder. They really didn't seem to do much of anything to help her. Once they realized she wasn't one to take orders and had a mind of her own, they sent her to Bloomingdale, which was a much stricter place. Um, Edie said, When I was in the hospital, I was very suicidal in a kind of blind way. I was starving to death just because I didn't want to turn out like my family showed me. You know, that's all I ever saw of people, my own family. I wasn't allowed to associate with anyone, so I didn't want to live. So at this facility, it did really help Edie much more than Silverhill. And toward the end of her stay, Edie was reaching her 20s. She was having more freedom. She was dealing with some of her eating disorder issues. Um, they allowed her freedom. She could go out and come back when she wanted. And uh, she ended up having sex for the first time with a young Harvard man that she knew while she was staying at Silverhill on one of her like outings. And she ended up getting pregnant on her first time. Um, she ended up getting an abortion with no hassle, though, because apparently, if you were um and I quote here, a psychiatric case, that was like that was legal, I guess. So, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, by the fall of 1963, Edie's 20, and she begins attending Cambridge and studying art. So, like her father. Edie both drew and did sculpture since she was a child, and she really was quite good. You can look up some of Edie's artwork online, or if you have books like I do, they're in there. Um, Edie was absolutely adored by all those around her, and there was always a handful of guys trying to get her attention, and she didn't just have one group of friends. She really floated around. I guess finally being around other people for the first time, she was really you know taking advantage of it and loving it and
2: yeah i didn't realize like when you were saying when she was on the ranch she was really like they were so imprisoned and in in there but now i can see like when you were saying that she wasn't able to um associate with anybody else or she really didn't have any other contact like how isolating that could have been
3: absolutely yeah that's why i guess also like horses and the animals sounds like a weird cult it does it's the like fuzzies cult Absolutely. He wanted control over everything. And it's interesting too, because obviously you think of fuzzy as a villain because of everything that he did. But we know that, that his backstory, he, there's a reason he is why he is too. Right. Right. So yeah, she didn't just have one group of friends. She floated around her older sister. Suki says, um, That was a means of protection for Edie. She never really wanted to get too close to people, especially men who were interested in, like, real relationships or physical relationships with her. Edie sort of rejected that, maybe because of certain things that have happened. Uh, That doesn't mean she wasn't dating, though. It just means that these poor dudes were falling in love with her while she was already halfway out the door. (laughs) So of this time, Edie said... When I went back to Cambridge, I started going out a lot, and then I never came back at night at all. I was out with different men every night, practically. My younger sister and brother tried to get me committed for my bad behavior. They thought I was being really terrible, but I didn't go. So one can only speculate if that refers to, you know, sex or dates, and mm-hmm. uh, it was at Cambridge, though, that she began befriending all these glamorous, sophisticated gay men in the Cambridge-slash-Harvard scene. They really gave her the attention that she longed for without any sort of threat of sexual happenings or relationships. And they really all talked so wonderfully about Edie and uh, how beautiful she was and how she was the life of the party, always happy, always dancing. Um, I can't believe I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, I based this episode off of two amazing books. One's called Girl on Fire, David Wiseman, and another, which is unbelievable, it's called *Edie: an American Girl. It's by a woman named Jean Stein and George Plimpton, and Jean worked for, like, over a decade talking to everyone who ever knew Edie, from her family to every friend, even, like, I told you she went to boarding school for a year. She found people from that school to talk to. Like, it's so comprehensive. And the
2: pictures in Girl on
3: Fire, I'm looking through them, yeah. are magic. Huh? Gorgeous. Yes. Uh, yeah, so these books, absolutely wonderful. This is where this information is coming from. So everyone really wanted to be near A.D., and I pulled out a quote that sort of sums up this situation of what's happening by her friend John Anthony Walker. Walker, he said, she was a catalyst. By being in contact with her, the edges were sharper. An evening with Edie would only end when Edie had to get to the point of exhaustion, Mm. which would be at the end of two or three days. It's that old yogi axiom. The higher you go, the further you fall. We all know that. She liked being very close to extinction always. Wow. Yeah. So she's just really living it up for the first time in her life. She, you know, ball of fire. So two of Edie's brothers, I mentioned Minty Mm -hmm. and her other brother, Bobby, they are both in and out of hospitals during this period, both due to issues stemming from their father Uh, fuzzy was extremely combative and cruel towards bobby he would pick on him belittling him calling him stupid telling him you know you only have your looks to rely on you're nothing really just beating him down and with minty i mentioned it was that like stop being so sensitive be a real man kind of bullshit so while back in silver hill while Edie was at Cambridge, Minty ended up committing suicide. Oh. Yeah, the day before his 26th birthday. And I believe it was a day or two after he finally admitted to Fuzzy that he was in love with another man. Mm. Edie was, of course, absolutely devastated. She knew about Minty and she knew her father's reaction to the news. So she really blamed Fuzzy for his death. She went through a very dark grieving period after this. So, Edie's grieving, and she's also beginning to feel like she needs a change. She needs to step out of the Cambridge world. Um, so her friend Chuck Wine. Where is Cambridge again? This is New York, and like Harvard. In, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not like Manhattan though. It's like Connecticut suburb kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so her friend Chuck Wine who you'll hear m- more of. So remember his name. She, he said she's 21. It's like, can she prevail to keep herself from fuzzy shutting her away again? Cause she was always fearful. She always had this in the back of her mind. If I step out of line, if I do something, you know, is fuzzy going to come after me again? Is he going to lock me up? That was always, always there, always there. Um, So in Edie's words, after a year, I decided I was going to New York to see what was really going on in the world. She went with the intention to Manhattan to model. And lucky for her, at this point, she inherits $80,000 from her maternal grandmother. So before finding her own place, she lived with her grandma and Danny Fields, Wow. Yeah. Uh, Danny was uh, part of the Cambridge, Harvard world, so she knew him before she even got to New York. So they were they were friends. Yeah, Cool.
2: Yeah. So cool.
3: So he, Danny wasn't the only f- friend who decided to kind of head to New York City at that time as well. A whole bunch of Edie's male friends followed her, Chuck Wine being the main guy. Uh, So Edie was really having a blast for those first, you know, months in New York. She was meeting people. She's going to dance classes, trying to build a model career and uh, spending vast amounts of her inheritance Mm -hmm. on whatever she felt like
2: clothing. And her hair is like, it's so interesting to see the early pictures of her and she's
3: so beautiful, but she's got this like long brown hair, right? Yeah. And she's got really dark eyes and yeah, she was very like dark beauty at this point Mm -hmm. yeah so a lot of the cool places and restaurants in new york at the time edie of course would was all over them la ventura Undine. um she very quickly kind of became an innate girl that everyone wanted to know and in december of 1964 bob newworth and bob dylan heard about this amazing girl named edie uh that they just had to meet. So Dylan called her up one evening and the three of them met at the kettle of fish in Greenwich Village and they hung out. And I got some quotes from New Earth here. He said, Edie was fantastic. She was always fantastic. We spent an hour or two all laughing and giggling, having a terrific time. She had the ability to relate on all levels with chauffeurs and ranch hands, understanding the human condition, yet at the same time, because of that upbringing of hers, rejecting anything less than numero uno. So I should mention, it's I like I love Edie so much, but also because of how rich and isolated her her world used to be. Like she would rent limos to go from one place to another. She had well, a Mercedes Marse- eighty thousand yeah. dollars in nineteen sixty
2: three three yeah. What would that even be today? I, I, like uh, insane. There's a crazy like there. I think that there is actually a way to convert things like that. Yeah. Should look but, it up. but that's pretty wild. And you know what? One thing we know about Bob Dylan is he loved people with a story. Oh, yeah. He loved oh, yeah. people with a story.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Um. So. So she had a Mercedes that you said. She, yeah. She did have a Mercedes for a while in New York. She ended up crashing it. Then she moved on to limos. Just limos always. Not cabs. Limos. <laughs> So, um, she was really, uh, out on her own for the first time and she was spending all this money, but she really had no skills to fend for herself. So she was really putting everything on a tab, never paying it off. Pills, bills were like mounting up. Uh, she just either never bothered to learn to handle finances or never, you know, seemed to think of the repercussions, um, she was overly generous with her money, too. She would take an entire party, half of whom would be strangers out you know for lavish dinners and she apparently went through that entire eighty thousand in six months and mm. again in like nineteen sixty three sixty four yeah um, there's this sad but beautiful quote from Edie that she once said she said um, if i if all I cared about was me, I could make a million, and that's what they will never understand." She really was an extremely generous girl as well. Mm -hmm. So when Fuzzy hears about this wild spending, he isn't exactly thrilled. Bobby and Edie had wanted to spend that Christmas together in New York City, but Fuzzy demanded Edie come home and that Bobby not come home. Yeah. So the family was back in California and they got word that Bobby crashed his motorcycle into a bus on New Year's Eve. So he passed away. No. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, especially when you when you're close with your siblings, I mean, the pain of losing one and then losing another. Yeah. Like not That's even tragic.
3: A year yeah. He got he was in a coma and he passed away 12 days later. He was 31. Fuzzy didn't even give him a funeral. Edie's sister, Saucy, says, I don't know where my brothers are buried. I don't think they're buried anywhere. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, um, oh, I should say, their brother Jonathan said that Fuzzy later in life revealed to him that he scattered their ashes on the ranch. So hopefully that's where they are. Uh, the crazy thing about Bobby's passing, though, is that at almost precisely the exact same moment, Edie was driving her dad's car in California with a friend and she ran a red light and got into an accident as well. She ended up breaking her leg and she had a laceration on her forehead. Uh, She was really terrified that her dad would use this car crash as an excuse to lock her up again. So that very night with the help of her mother, Edie left the hospital and, and went straight back to New York to get away. So of course Edie took Bobby's death extremely hard as well Edie always believed that Bobby purposely crashed. So she, in her mind, both her brothers committed suicide. Wow. Yeah. So her way of sort of dealing, I guess, was trying to ignore it. Go right back into party mode, straight back into, you know, friends and mindless parties. and But, of course, she has her leg in this cast. <laughs> So Bob Newarth said, I remember her at Harlow's, an uptown discotheque. The young rascals were playing. She had this sculptor come over and chisel off her cast. Then she sp- sent a few of her escorts to the cloakroom for some coat hangers and tied them to her leg with neckties to make herself a splint. She proceeded to dance for the rest of the night. Her doctor was suggesting she'd be permanent cripple and she was having none of it. Oh, my God,
2: Edie. That reminds me when I had a broken leg in Halifax, and TJ and I's first date was going to see a band. Then we stayed afterwards for 90s night, and
1: uh, I I danced
2: all night on one leg.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one thing you, you must know about Edie is she lived, lived to dance, and she's absolutely wonderful to watch. She had this unique style of movement that was totally her own and really made her the center of attention on the dance floor i'm sure she probably like purposely like she wanted to be the center how can i see this youtube for sure um she does these jerky somewhat like egyptian looking movements like it's it's hard to explain like please go youtube her dancing you need to see it for herself to understand especially how much she must have stood out in in the 60s in that time. Um, Another fascinating thing about Edie, where most girls would have been upset about this laceration, this scar on her forehead from the accident, uh, Edie used to actually get her eyeliner and trace the scar to make it more prominent. Hmm. yeah so if you look at photos of her and notice a little bit of like makeup between her eyebrows sometimes it might look like you know a smudge or something but that was actually on purpose
2: oh okay yes oh i see what you mean yeah yeah now yeah. i can i can you can really see it yeah she she wanted it prominent. Oh, look i just flipped to a picture of her dancing
3: yeah so you can imagine like it's like these jerky kind of yep. interesting she had her own thing going for sure so edie was getting a lot of attention now but she's still not fully there yet we know edie's sort of all over the place and couldn't handle the day-to-day stuff so this is where her cambridge friend chuck wine comes in handy he definitely saw that she had something special in her and he sort of took over her life in a way he would plan who she had to meet where they had to go always thinking ahead like who will benefit us most Lester Persky was a producer involved in theater and film and commercials and he was also kind of a catalyst of bringing people together like all the most well-known authors and artists of that time so when he met Edie he also saw that spark in her and it was him who contacted Andy Warhol and said you've got to meet this girl like she is your next superstar so Andy had already had an it girl her name was baby Jane Holzer um who like Edie? I believe she came from like money, and she was sort of running out of steam though in the in the press. So, you know, she wasn't. Also, Jane wasn't really into the wild, drugged up scene that the factory was shifting into at this point either. So, I think I I don't I don't think they kind of pushed Jane out. I think she naturally kind of, and she would come in and out. So, yeah, it's, it's not like a negative for. For Jane, that Edie is coming in. So, at one of Persky's infamous parties on March 26th, 1965, Edie and Andy met. Warhol saw what we all do, an absolute star, and invited her and Chuck to the factory the next day. Pretty much immediately, Edie and Andy were attached at the hip. Edie chopped off all her hair and she spray painted it silver because she didn't know how to get it the white blonde she'd wanted. And since Andy wore silver wigs, everyone thought Edie had purposely made herself into a female Andy. In Chow Manhattan, the movie, uh, Edie says that that's untrue, but whether it was conscious or subconscious, you only have to look at the photos to see what was happening. Uh, Both Edie and Andy were the type who loved to be adored, so each was sort of flattered that the other was taking such an interest, and Truman Capote, he said... I think Edie was something Andy would have liked to have been. He was transposing himself onto her a la Pygmalion. Andy would have liked to be Edie Sedgwick. He would have liked to have been a charming, well-born debutante from Boston. Wow. Yes. So Edie had found this new platform that she would be getting attention that she wanted. And Andy had this amazing new superstar to flaunt, which, of course, helped him publicity-wise as well. So from this point on, every gallery event, every party, even when Andy went on talk shows, he would bring Edie along. And since Andy was already a man of few words, he used Easy Edie as a sort of mouthpiece. You can look at interviews with them on YouTube. Edie does all the talking.
2: And she's good at uh, interviews? Is she articulate and yeah, does she's, that personality translate absolutely, to television?
3: Absolutely. You can see, you definitely, she. you can always see that spark in her. You can always see it. Cool. So let's talk about the factory a little bit at this point. Edie is a newcomer to an already well-established group of social outcasts and misfits. And at the time, Gerard Malanga was Andy's right-hand man. And you and listeners may remember him from Patti Smith's episode. He helped her get her first few poetry readings. And Bridget and Richie Berlin were two very different sisters in the scene. Bridget is most well-known um she's in a bunch of andy's films i say this in in the nicest way she was sort of a loud mouth and she really did whatever the fuck she wanted she did not give a shit what anyone thought she's kind of scary but like in the most badass way (laughs) so there's them there's viva a stunning woman who you can see in andy warhol's films and who fun fact is the mother of gabby hoffman oh neat yeah Uh, Nico and Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground would be forming like around this time and um, not quite there yet Paul Morrissey who would become Warhol's main director he was around but not as influential in Warhol's film world Um, yeah I just wouldn't call him like one of the inner at, at that moment. There was also a ton, a ton of incredibly fascinating people that I would love to talk about right now, but they don't really pro- propel the story forward. So another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what all these fascinating, strange, like, crazy muse's people. Muses, side stories. Yeah. Everybody
2: else at the factory. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. I, honestly, one day I'm going to do that because they are all amazing. I love Great. all of them.
2: Well, I'm sure they were all muses and, Absolutely. you know, one way or and another. an artist and, and
3: they're all am- amazing and interesting. And yeah, so... The factory. There's lots of drugs going on. LSD. I think the drug of choice there, though, was speed. Uh, interestingly, I don't think Warhol was really a drug taker. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure he. he, I, he probably took like prescribed pills, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, um, you know, popping speed in his ass like everyone else was. And uh, he actually put up a sign in the factory, like asking people not to take drugs there. But of course, everyone saw it as a joke. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure if she was introduced to speed through the factory, but she had certainly already done LSD and probably amphetamines and stuff like that. I mean, she'd been taking drugs since she was a kid, thanks to Fuzzy and the the institutions that she was put in. So Edie really is like a perfect candidate for this blossoming drug scene. And of course, we have to also remember things like speed, heroin, those they didn't know as much back then as we know now it, it was a completely different everyone did it openly it wasn't something gross or weird or yeah anything like that it was yeah probably it was the norm and... it was the norm yeah everyone did it yeah. so andy had already been transitioning from art uh more into film by then so of course it's only natural he put his new superstar in his films Um, With Edie's films like Beauty Number 2, Space, and Poor Little Rich Girl, the conversations Edie has in them, it's really Chuck Wine who's directing things. It's Chuck speaking to her in Poor Little Rich Girl, not Andy. Um, Tom Goodwin, a friend and her chauffeur when she had her broken leg, said one of the things that Chuck was terrific at was getting Edie to do things on film. He understood that Edie was best at just being Edie. She was totally involved with her self image or her vision of her self image. It was like that awful voyeuristic thing of the one way mirror. But what was beautiful but it was beautiful the way she did it. Chuck has a real sense of timing with Edie. All the stuff in Andy's films of Edie being Edie is Chuck. That's not Andy. So I know most people probably assume a Warhol film means Warhol's directing, but he really never directed anyone. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um and it was yeah, it wasn't just Edie. He was Andy Andy is a fascinating man. He was incredibly cunning. He wasn't a Svengali. He did not turn people with no talent into incredible superstars he recognized when people had something special and he used it to his advantage by giving them a platform to display what was already there so later his films did get more scripted and that is when paul morrissey began doing all that work So from March to August of 1965, Edie will be seen in a bunch of his films, including Vinyl, Kitchen, Afternoon, Beauty Number 2, Outer and Inner Space, and her most well-known is Poor Little Rich Girl. Uh, So before these films are even released, Edie and Andy are getting so much press that it's just skyrocketing her fame-wise. At first, her father, Fuzzy, was pleased with the idea of Edie reaching great fame, but as it grew, he realized the type of world that she was involved in and what she was getting up to, and it really wasn't to his standards of what a socialite with their background should be doing. So Edie is technically now an adult, but is spending more than she earns and was definitely still relying on her parents' help, and uh, since she had or since they had this financial hold over her she was also still like ever fearful of of fuzzy
2: i had a feeling i thought about that earlier yeah um with the whole like christmas thing and uh that they were probably kind of bankrolling a lot of this stuff too which is why she stuck around and didn't just say goodbye forever early on yeah that keeps a lot of people attached i think
3: um, Edie later said, I had no money. My parents closed down my credit. They were trying to lock me up again because I'd taken some acid and told my psychiatrist about it. I told him about the, what the experience was like and he jumped. And at the same time, he read about Andy Warhol's pornographic movies in Time Magazine. That's what they called his film. Uh, it was in this Well, was
2: Edie doing anything in the realm
3: of porn por- no, no. or like. They were just um, art films. Nudity? No, I, she. The most you ever saw was like brawn and panties uh, of Edie and Andy's films. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but because Andy, the the factory, you know, had a lot of gay men, and he right. did films that were provocative in that sense for that time. Some people were like, "What is this pornographic?" But like, when if you look at it now, it's just art, you right? Know? For sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So. She says, I was in the studio a lot, so my psychiatrist got really upset and called my parents and was going to have me put away, so I ran to Europe with Chuck and Andy. So Edie goes to Europe. They end up traveling to Paris, Tangiers, Madrid, and London, doing press there and showing the Poor Little Rich Girl film.
2: How many times have you seen that film?
3: I've seen it quite a few, but it's not the easiest film to watch because... When you say art film, like it's an art film, like twenty minutes of it's, or like fifteen minutes of it maybe is fuzzy, like (laughs) like you can't make out what you're looking at. So it's not like an easy watching kind of situation. But it's on YouTube. Anyone who's interested, and it's like it's the final part that Edie's really talkative. That's the part you need to see. Okay. Um, interestingly. They were in London at the same time that Dylan and Newworth were filming Don't Look Back. So I think they hooked up in London as well. And back in New York, she was invited and attended a Kennedy compound party with Bob Newworth. So like literally everyone knew, including the Kennedys, about this fascinating girl and they wanted to meet her. So um, Chuck Wine says about this time, though. You know, nothing that was happening in New York, no matter how interesting it was or good for her, wiped that out. And that, he means, the fear of fuzzy. In other words, the idea that she had to worry about being locked up was more important than being in vogue. She put all her all into it, but she didn't care. It was still back there and what they could do to her. That was always on her mind. So it's interesting to note that Edie very much wanted Fuzzy and Warhol to meet, and they did once um, at a dinner in New York City when Fuzzy was visiting. I'm not sure if this meeting happened before or after they went to Europe, though. This scene is in Factory Girl, but it was completely rewritten to be much more dramatic. In real life, Fuzzy was very pleasant to Warhol, and Andy actually says nice things about Fuzzy. And there wasn't much of a conversation there, though, because Andy was apparently terrified at the same time. And he was a man of few words to begin with. So um, there's a much more interesting, like, psychological things happening here, too, though. Uh, A family friend that was there said Fuzzy was at first nervous to meet Warhol because he believed Warhol and Edie were in a sexual relationship together. And he felt uncomfortable about that but after dinner he said to his friend and I'm quoting why the guy's a screaming fag Mm -hmm. about Andy in like some kind of relief Mm -hmm. over it so there's also the fact that both both men are artists and Fuzzy of course is a sculptor and Andy's doing like avant-garde art at this point it's new it's different and um, fuzzy i I believe he never really felt that he got the recognition that he deserved, and then there 's other similarities not only are they artists but they 're both very cunning, both have control so essentially over a group of kids that are you know struggling to figure out who they are um, and maybe you know Edie was attracted to Andy in some sort of bizarro father figure type. Andy was fifteen years older than Edie and Uh, The factory and the ranch are different, but maybe not all that different in a way.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, if Edie would have left the ranch and went and joined up with some other kind of organized group, that's exactly the kind of people that they prey upon. Exactly. I mean... The factory is different because it has this reputation now and it's very glamorized and it's like really a part of history that's just, mm-hmm. you know, it is it's only, it is what it is. There is no other factory. There is no other Andy Absolutely. Warhol. But I mean, she could have just as easily have gone to the
3: Mans- the Manson. Yeah. Yeah. Commune. If she didn't go to New York, who knows? Who knows? Wow. So I mentioned the factory and a lot of, you know, eclectic people there and has a pretty heavy drug scene. A lot of this was spearheaded by an infamous doctor in New York at the time, who they called Dr. Robert. Mm -hmm. Uh, His clientele included everyone from sort of like the freak on the street to high-class aristocrats. He usually shot up his clients with speed and an assortment of vitamins, but sometimes it would be cocaine or LSD. No one seemed to care or question, like why or you know ask what's in this <laughs> um the highest doses cost 25 dollars a shot and by the time you got to that point you were going maybe two or three times a day to maintain that high so you like it was a pricey habit um edie was a main client of course interestingly enough uh her mother actually went with edie to the doctor once and her parents paid for all these shots
2: did her parents think that it was just vitamins though
3: I don't I don't know, because back then, you know, amphetamines and stuff were legal. So oh, and right. it's a doctor prescribing it and people trust doctors and <sighs> it's a crazy time. Oh, um, all the people in the factory went there uh, in in the book, Joel Schumacher and Cherry Vanilla both talk about their experiences with Dr. Robert. And uh, I'm sure basically anyone who's anyone who passed through New York at, through this peri- period went to see him and yes he is the dr robert from the beatles song wow yeah i know that both cherry vanilla and edie slept with him both sort of talking about how like the adrenaline rush from the shot which dr robert was also constantly taking him himself would kind of lead to wild nights sometimes (sighs) um she got totally sucked into all that she was taking shots of cocaine speed lsd speed balls which is both uh speed and heroin or cocaine and heroin Uh, she did talk about having a needle in both arms once one full of cocaine and speed and the other heroin and when she did that for the first time she ended up running nude down park avenue for a couple blocks until her friends were able to catch her oh my god yeah so she really fell in love with the drug and the rush of the drug and I'm sure it helped block out a lot of emotional issues yeah. that she, you know, wasn't ready to face at that time. So everyone knew Edie was, you know, this bright shining star in the centerpiece of every room. Uh, and they were all in universal agreement that a lot of her magnetic draw had to do with that the fact that it was obvious that she would burn out quickly. Danny Fields... Okay, wait. Yes. Say that one more time. Okay. There's a good quote... Edna Saint Vincent Millay. She says, "My candle burns at both ends; it will not last the night." So she's burning always at both ends, and you know that candle's going to go. Hence girl on fire. Yes. So what they're
2: saying is they knew that her time was. Yeah, she
3: was rising and rising, but everyone was also sort of waiting for the fall. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Danny Field said. You knew that you couldn't really have her. Everyone knew that. She was doomed. We just knew that. So in Warhol's book, Popism, he actually compared her to Judy Garland saying, Edie and Judy had something in common, a way of getting everyone totally involved in their problems. When you were around them, you forgot you had your own problems of your own, or sorry, you had problems of your own, so you got so involved in theirs. They had drama going round the clock, and everyone loved to help them through it all. Their problems made them more attractive. So, yeah, a lot of people did try to help Edie. A lot of people were her friend. It's not like people are watching her, like, excited, waiting for the fall, but... You also need to want to help yourself. And she was, you know, 21, 22. She wasn't there yet. So by August of 65, Edie was at her absolute peak. There was pieces about her in Vogue, a feature in Life magazine. It was like a whole spread. They called her the girl in the black tights because she made, you know, black tights sort of famous. Uh She, she was in the World Telegram. She became Betsy Johnson's first ever model. The press called her the girl of the year And to give you an idea of just how crazy it was within that time of frame, this is August. I remember they only met in March. Wow. Yeah. They went to um, Philadelphia for an opening of Warhol's work, and it was just a mob scene. Police had to block the crowd off from rushing them. They were terrified, but Edie was also, like, fascinated and loving it. On Dean, who was one of the factory regulars, he said... There's no way people can stand outside a museum and chant Edie and Andy, but they were out there chanting and screaming. They were that relevant. Edie told me afterwards, Andine, I can't believe they were out there chanting my name, Edie and Andy, Edie and Andy. She was like, it was an insane response from a whole culture. If you're going to be that kind of culture hero, my God, assume the mantle, wear it, be a culture hero. Edie was literally the queen of the whole scene, totally the best of them all. So Edie is modeling, making these films, but these films aren't getting played in like a local theater near you. They're underground movies. They're not really generating that much money. I'm not sure if Edie ever got paid by Andy for these films. Um, I know that plenty of other people who participated in Andy's films during this period never got paid. So it's possible. Either way, at this point, she's realizing Andy seems to be profiting more over all of this than I am. So, yeah, they've only met in March. By July, people could sort of see the first cracks in their relationship beginning. Um, Andy decided to make a couple films and not use her. Uh, I believe after July, they only made about two or three films together, and those were very, very spaced out. So Edie was really beginning to see le- see him less as this great father figure to this band of misfits and more for what he was.
2: But also, look at who she replaced. Yeah. Right? It's exactly. almost like that woman had a timestamp stamp on her, Yeah, and then it was also like, okay, does Edie have a timestamp stamp on her, or is she going to be like, um, you know, a... a- an actress who lasts her whole career and then if people are already thinking that she's like the ticking time bomb then it's
3: yeah and yeah. she's so finally realizing oh maybe he's using yep. me maybe I need to start thinking for myself mm-hmm. and There were already people out there who figured out what Andy was all about. Danny Fields, Bob Dylan, and New Earth. They were all really encouraging Edie to take it to the next level, explore her options. Uh, Danny said, Edie used to wonder, should I go to Hollywood, get an agent, break away from Andy? People were toying around with her, all sorts of leads. But she'd meet them and she'd come back and say, oh, God, they were such assholes. I can't work with them. I have to be with my friends. I want to be with people I love. That's not your most professional of attitudes. I'd say to Edie, you have to do it. If you want to make it in show business, you have to deal with morons. It doesn't matter if they don't like you for exactly the right reasons or pamper you the right way or are too stupid to appreciate you for what you really are. But it was hard to get her away from the Andy thing. It was so much fun. It was a party time. She felt that she couldn't make the transition into the real crap that you had to deal with in order to make it. And I guess what it really comes down to is Edie felt safe in that world. She felt, these are my family. I'm, you know, I'm protected here, which really wasn't the case, though. So, but it's it's just, it's hard for her. So things very quickly become quite nasty. So Edie is rightfully so getting resentful, and she's kind of being, she's starting to push back being less cooperative. Uh, This antagonized the whole factory crowd, and for a while, they sort of turned on her. One day, Warhol and company were hanging out at a bar, and they spot this girl. I'm going to read you a quote from Renee Ricard here. They had noticed, doesn't this girl look like an ugly Edie? Let's teach her a lesson. Let's make a movie with her and tell Edie she's the new big star. Oh. Yeah. So they got this girl, they cut her hair like Edie's, they made her up to look like Edie, and her name became Ingrid Superstar. They used to call Edie, Edie Superstar, so they were really, you know, pushing it in her face. That's mean. Yes. That's,
2: they're, that's bullying.
3: Yes, and Ingrid was just an invention to make Edie feel horrible. Yeah. And awful for that girl, too. Exactly, exactly. So many levels here. And especially because Ingrid did stick around, and she had no idea that for quite a while she was considered this joke to everyone. They all made fun of her behind their backs. But Ingrid was like kind of a sweetheart, and she did sort of become part of the family for a bit. And she is in a couple of Warhol films, um, though they did discard her as well. Well, Man, I wonder if she's written anything. Unfortunately... In the mid-80s, she went out for cigarettes and never returned. No one knows what happened to her.
2: Oh my
3: god. Yeah. yeah. You can actually look at fo- up photos of Edie and Ingrid together at the factory. I have no idea... If Edie ever did feel threatened by her, but I imagine it had to hurt at least a little to hear everyone praise Ugh. the new superstar and compliment her as like in constantly like comparing her to Edie. I'm having feelings. I know. I know yeah. you feel for her. You mm-hmm. so do. So I guess it's no surprise that by the end of 1965, Edie was no longer Warhol's sidekick and she's really not hanging out all that much at the factory and with that crowd. She still saw them here and there, but there was no real affection between them anymore. Warhol had moved on to another obsession, which was Nico and the Velvet Underground. Edie actually dated John Cale for a very short time, and she performed on stage with the Velvet Underground in January of 66. Um, But that can can be seen as like a final hurrah in in the Warhol group at this point. Bob Dylan and Newworth were beginning to be a bigger presence in her life. Uh, Newworth said Dylan did express interest in doing a film with Edie, Did they ever have a relationship? I will get to that. Okay, thank you. Um, So Dylan had pushed Edie to sign with his manager, Albert Grossman, uh, in order to further her career. So Edie's got Dylan and Newerth and Grossman on her side at this point. Um, No one truly knows. Edie has never flat out said that she had an affair with Dylan. Dylan has always denied it. Uh, But many presume it did happen. Um, we have to remember though, at this time, Dylan is secretly married to his first wife. Mm -hmm. So even if they did have a relationship at this period, maybe he's just being respectful to Sarah and not saying, yeah, I was freshly married and screwing Edie, you know? Yep. Um. Oh
2: man. And I want to do like. I want to know more about Sarah. I know. know? I know. Like, I want to know more about just the Warhol crowd in particular. Like, there are so many more episodes that can just jump out of this one. I'm I'm so excited.
3: So, Paul Morrissey said one of the last few times he saw Andy, or he saw Edie, um, she was at the factory and she was talking to the crowd about how her and Bob Dylan were going to do a film together and she was going to be his leading lady and I think maybe Andy got jealous or angry at the idea of Edie with other amazing artists and Andy had actually heard the news of Dylan's secret wedding earlier and he said to Edie like oh well did you know Dylan is married and Edie just went pale and she- Paul says she was kind of trembling it was clear she was blindsided by the news so we can't say how like deep her relationship was with him but it seems like I, either she had a crush on him or they had a fling that she was uh, upset about that um and we do know that dylan was certainly fascinated with edie i mean he wrote leopard skin pillbox hat just like a woman about her and many believe Like a Rolling Stone, it was at least partly inspired by her. But the thing is that Dylan recorded that in June of 65, while Edie and Warhol were still like BFFs. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't really be surprised if he could see what was going to happen, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, since everyone says that she was doomed and Warhol had a history of using people. So, you know, you never know. And And he certainly knew her then. Either way, it's pretty heartbreaking that her life does resemble the song like a Rolling Stone, like pretty much to a T. Uh now in Factory Girl, yeah, they make out that Dylan was Edie's great love and uh lean on their relationship as one of the main reasons Andy turned on Edie. Uh I think Edie not being treated fairly enough uh was reason enough for their relationship to turn sour. Now whether her and Dylan had an affair or not, yeah. It was actually Bob Newworth. That Edie was closest to and considered her great love, mm. so they were the ones with an ongoing love affair. So, the first film Edie made without Warhol was actually with Bob Newarth. Uh He talks about it in his, bo- or he talks about it in the book, and it sounds really cute and lovely. But unfortunately, has never been shown publicly. The film, I, yeah, why? I, I don't know. I don't know. Have you seen it? No, I wish. I wish. But Bob Newerth is still alive. He should uh, find it and put it out. Okay. In April of 1966, Edie and Andy had a big argument over things. They would run into each other here and there. And this is sort of when they officially split, if you will. Like this was like the big blowout. So Edie begins to try and big build a new life and career outside the Warhol world, but we know that she never did that film with Dylan, so that was a certainly you know, a blow to Bob her. Bob Dylan
2: was a lot of talk, too, yeah. always, yeah. about stuff like that, yeah. and I think especially when
3: it came to film. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And we know also he's just so busy at this time. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, she was finding it more and more difficult to get work as a model as well. See, Warhol's films were considered, like we've talked about, kind of shocking. And um, while their relationship certainly helped her reach higher fame, it did quickly turn negative, especially since the drug use became more wider known. So even a lot of the people who, uh, people at Vogue who were like, yeah, we really wanted to work with Edie, we really loved her. Uh, But because it was now common knowledge of the types of lifestyles Edie and the people that she hung out with lived Um, a lot of people want like stepped away because they didn't want to be associated with that so Edie's attempting to act as well she tried out for the deer park which is a Norman Mailer play he was putting it together Um, Norman said one of the reasons she wasn't cast was because she was so much she used so much of herself with every line that they knew she'd be immolated after three performances as in burnt just, out? Yes. Like, it just... Not sustainable. Dead. Yeah, exactly. She didn't know balance. Mm-hmm. She didn't... Just like in life. She just pushed and yes. pushed until... So what makes this all even worse is that Edie's father decides, we're cutting you off completely now. Like, we're done. So she's no longer getting an allowance. She has zero money coming in. On October 17th, 1966, Edie accidentally sets fire to her apartment. Uh, She said she was lighting candles and the drapes caught fire. Of course, uh, she was still very much on drugs during this time. Um, she burned a bit of her arm, but was otherwise unharmed. And after that, she ended up moving to the Chelsea Hotel, mm. the infamous Chelsea Hotel. And New Earth said she really loved it there. And like all the other artists who passed through, it was like a, a magical place for her. So Edie actually did one last film with Andy in November of 66, though it has never also never been seen publicly. It was called The Andy Warhol Story, and Rene Ricard was playing Warhol. So it was Renee apparently who insisted Andy call Edie and get her over and she apparently agreed because Andy was like, oh, I'll pay for your taxi and like pay for your, you to come over. So she did. I think she was probably pretty desperate at this point to agree to that in the first place and it sounds like just the most horrific scene. Renee says, I played him the way he behaved to people under him. She played herself according to how she felt about him then. "'The things she said to me were horrible. "'I have nightmares about what I did in that movie. "'Saying things about Andy that were true, "'how he disposed of people.' Paul Morrissey, who was behind the camera, was white with rage. We did one reel and stopped. Then Andy, in his sick, masochistic, dreadful way, said, "'Let's do another reel.' So we did another reel, and in this one, it got violent. Edie started it. At some point, I gave her orchids. She took them and crushed them. I got very upset and said, "'You need to fix yourself up, my dear.' She cried out, "'I hate them. I don't want to be beautiful.' Edie was hating me. We were both hating each other because of the roles we were playing. She was horrible in the movie and mean. The things I was saying were horrible. We finished two reels and Edie rushed home. So Edie says that later Andy invited him to see the rushes at the factory and they had edited it so that his vocals were drowned out and you could only hear Edie like screaming and yelling and apparently Andy was in glee over it in some sick way so that kind of shows you what kind of guy he is so Edie again has no income and tons of bills to pay and so um, New Earth and maybe with Albert Grossman as well hired a professional money manager to try and help her so he got her bills in order he talked to all her creditors who were after her and made sure they wouldn't sue her and uh, he even talked to her family and tried to get them to help this man was so lovely, and he tried so hard to help Edie. Uh, she came to him when she needed money, and he'd do his best to, like, give her what she needed. Uh, I think Edie was also asking all her friends for help at this point, and some did, and some didn't, and some probably could, and some couldn't as well.
2: Can you imagine that, going from, you know, know. just showing up places and limos to then asking people if yeah. she can borrow money, like...
3: And especially, I'm sure all of those people like edie had paid for their meals and their parties and stuff too right right she had given all that out and yeah i mean it's great she has a money manager now it's the first time ever she's trying to i don't i don't know if she's being taught or if she's just having someone do it for her you know that she should have been taught how to care for herself
2: it's called financial literacy yes
3: edie's mother did care about her and she came out to New York and tried to convince Edie to move back to the ranch. Edie did agree to go back to the ranch for Christmas in 1966. So after one day there, her father started giving her Nemutal. What is that? Nembutal is a pill. It's like a downer. Oh, God. So she got really messed up. And that night, her she said that she took it because she just didn't want to argue with him. She was like trying to be... I don't know.
2: Yeah. And what's one more pill, right? When you're injecting yourself in the ass with (laughs) speed speed balls. What's like one little pill?
3: So she really got messed up. And that night her dad woke her up and he said that like, oh, you have this terrible fever. We need to take you to the hospital. So she he said, like, we have an ambulance waiting downstairs. She went downstairs. There wasn't an ambulance. There was a police car. Her dad claimed that she was like raving mad and talking about suicide. And just like that, Edie got put away again. So Neuwirth, remember, she's dating Bob Newirth at this point. Uh, he was phoning her like crazy, trying to reach her. And finally, her dad picked up and he was like, uh, well, she's put away. And um, Bob said he, he seemed rather proud when he told me how he had committed her. I guess it was the only way he could think of controlling her. So, New Earth actually threatens Fuzzy, saying, I have lawyers out here, and if Edie doesn't come home in the next day, if she's not picking up this phone tomorrow, like I- they're coming after you. And it worked. Ooh. So, he-, he got Edie out of uh, the hospital, and Edie was there the next day, and she said to Bobby, like, get me out of here. Like, I'm a prisoner. Help me. So, New Earth made sure she was on a plane back to New York, like, within a day or two. So, unfortunately, it's shortly after this that her and New Earth part ways. He says, We drifted apart. It started off with her mistreating herself. I couldn't believe that a person of such intelligence would. mistreat herself to that extent but I'm sure reflecting on it that it was caused by desperation and a lack of an outlet for that incredible energy Edie talks a bit about their relationship in her film child Manhattan Uh, she said it was really sad Bobby and Maya's affair my only true passionate and lasting love scene and I practically ended up in the psych ward I had really learned about sex from him, making love, loving, giving. But the minute he left me alone, I felt so empty and so lost that I would start popping pills. I really loved this man. So their relationship had been on and off for, I think, that entire two years that they'd known each other. And he was one of the few that truly took care of her in those dark, dark moments. So when he had to step away, uh, Edie was really at her worst. Um, if the drugs were bad before, they're like completely her life now. So around March of 1967, two men, John Palmer and Robert, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, Margullef, Marguleth, Uh, they decide to make a film and they were friends with Chuck Wine and Chuck, as we know, loves to use Edie for advancement. He suggests, hey, why don't we call Edie? Why don't we cast her in the film? Why don't we make a film about her? I'll write the film. So this is a film that will become Chow Manhattan. I wouldn't call the film good by any means, but it's a definite representation of this scene. Uh, Warhol wasn't involved, but many of Edie's friends in the factory are in it. Good old Dr. Robert was on the payroll shooting everyone up on set. He even makes it into the storyline as well. Um, Edie began dating. Did Did he ever get in trouble? No. 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 Um, And if you look him up, you can find out his real name now. And yeah, he's probably not a doctor anymore. Uh, Well, he's probably not around anymore. Mm. I don't know if he's still alive. Um, Edie began dating a man they called Paul America, another like Warhol superstar, I guess. And that's all in the film. During the filming, Edie once again accidentally set fire to her apartment in chelsea
2: okay so girl on fire is a little bit more <laughs> to do with her just it it's about her literally setting fire <laughs> okay
3: that also shows you like how uh, d- drugged up she is yeah. i mean she's oh poor thing this time it was much scarier she'd fallen asleep holding a cigarette the whole place was ablaze when she woke up In her messed up state, she couldn't unlock the door. She hid in her closet. When the smoke began coming into the closet, she opened the door. She burned her hand on the knob. Um, This time she was able to open her front door, thankfully. But her cat, who had been given to her by Bob Dylan Mm -hmm. and who, ironically, was named Smoke, of all things, (laughs) fell victim to the blaze. So the room was a disaster. Like, she could not move back into that room. You can find photos of Edie with her hand all bandaged up you can find photos of Edie being carried by firemen out of her apartment um the Chelsea was not happy with her either they no. definitely banned her from ever staying there again um so she ends up living with one of the film's producers for a while and they hired someone to sort of be her like 24-7 ta- caretaker make sure she was okay make sure she wasn't doing anything crazy Uh, Needless to say, though, like with a cast full of interesting people, let's put it that way, uh, and your main star sort of being the most out there and fucked up, uh, filming went on much longer than intended, and a ton of money went down the drain. And finally, filming had to come to a halt because in June, Edie takes off. She drives to LA with some friends. She just left. She was Mm -hmm. like, "I, I can't do it anymore, I guess. And she went back to LA. So... Edie ends up in the Hollywood Hills in a place called The Castle. Now, lots of familiar faces have stayed there. Dylan had previously. Danny Fields was there while Edie was. Nico was there. And they, Edie and Nico spent time together. And Nico, at this point, is having an affair with Jim Morrison. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Jim is oh, there all the time. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, Edie and Jim knew each other. 80 dates Dino Valenti, of all people, for a while. And then a man named Patrick Tilden, who Nico describes as Dylan's best friend. I don't, I've never seen any photos of them together, so that was interesting. Um, Tilden also became a Warhol superstar later. um, And he had been a child actor before. So I tried to look, yeah, I tried to look more up on Dylan and Tilden's relationship, but I couldn't really find anything. In August, Edie films Lulu with Bob Neuwirth, who she's still friends with, and uh, a man named Richard Lee Clock. Only photos of this exist now. Um, If you're wondering why Edie wasn't terrified of heading to California and being that close to Fuzzy, it's because Fuzzy's health had taken a turn for the worse. That may have also been one of the reasons she decided to go back. In October, Fuzzy passes away from pancreatic cancer. Some of Edie's family, her brothers and her sisters, say that by the end, Fuzzy was experiencing great amounts of guilt over what he had done to his children. And I think he thought his tough love approach would, like, succeed and not kill them. But when it did, he sort of had to face the facts that he was greatly responsible for he, their mental well-being and before he died he did one last sculpture of saint francis receiving the stigmata and he gave it to the mission in santa barbara and he dedicated it to minty and bobby uh,
2: yeah um... yeah
3: but of course he was still doing awful things like having an affair till the very end of his life with a very younger married woman and he kept edie's mother like out as out of his life as much as possible. So I'm not sure if Edie attended her father's funeral, but the same month he passed away, Edie returned to New York and she gets back into shooting speed. And within less than a month, she gets committed to multiple hospitals. They all around New York psychiatric hospitals or like just a regular psychiatric. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't like an overdose. Okay. Yeah. Psychiatric. She ends up spending about a year in these ho- psychiatric hospitals until her mother finally comes to New York to get her and brings her back to the ranch. So God only knows what horrific things happened to her in this hospital. It sounds like she came out a lot worse than when she went in.
2: Okay, because I you know it could have gone either way. Yeah. Depending on where you are, where you went, what kind of people you had around exactly. you. Exactly. And of course, we know that a lot of um, you know nastiness and abuse has occurred in certain uh, hospitals yeah. like that. And I mean... Throughout this whole episode I was like I think I know What happens to her But I don't know actually Yeah Um Uh so, I've been thinking like was there any way to ever turn this around? Could she have ever had some kind of saving grace? Could it have been spending a good amount of time at a really decent and good I'm institution? I'm sure a
3: good institution. But this was not about, it. That no. was
2: not her fate.
3: Apparently, oh. when she got home to the ranch, she couldn't even move her arms or legs or walk on her own. She could barely speak. She had to regain all of her motor control. They must have had her on some crazy strong drugs and they must
2: and if and if she lost all mobility they must have had her like strapped to a bed
3: yeah so she talks about how horrific the hospitals were in the book and i don't want to go over all the details everyone knows these horror stories
2: but there was abuse yes um probably physical psychological sexual Yes.
3: and we we can i don't know if she had shock treatments at this point um but Considering she had no motor skills, okay. I'm thinking possibly.
2: Okay.
3: Edie worked really hard at the ranch to become fully functional again and she did succeed. So I'm not sure how long it took her, but she was eventually able to get her own little apartment of her own in Santa Barbara. Um I feel weird mentioning this, but her brother Jonathan claims that Edie had been pregnant and they made her abort at the hospital. Uh, and that Edie was heartbroken over it. Her brother, Jonathan, also says that she claimed it was Bob Dylan's baby and that they'd been in a motorcycle accident together and stuff. And I don't believe any of that. Bob Dylan was in an accident, and but she wasn't with him. And uh, Edie was also sort of known as like a fibber. You know, she liked to... I, I think she sort of had... Stories and then she'd put the push them together into and, then exactly.
2: and then drugs and exactly, then history, you never really illness, know da, 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 like, exactly. Yeah, there okay. are no
3: medical records of her having an abortion at that period. Maybe she was remembering that first one. So, uh, her brother also claims that Edie tried to sleep with him at the ranch, but Edie had said that her brother tried to sleep with her, so I don't know. Okay. There's weird mess. That whole family. I mean, yeah. anything is possible. They're, they're all dealing with a lot of shit. So, yeah. Edie's in California. She's building a life. She's meeting new California friends. She's going out and partying. And then no time at all, the drugs come back in. Um, Is she even 30? No. Okay. She's about like 25, 26 years. Okay. So, if you believe her brother Jonathan again... 80, he says that Edie purposely decides to get herself busted by the cops in order to stop herself from herself. So in the summer of 69, Edie gets busted. Uh, sh- she actually drops her pills out of her purse, literally right in front of a cop. And he also says that she kicked the cop in the ass uh, so hard that he like f- kind of f- went flying. Um, so Edie gets sent again to a hospital. This time it's Cottage Hospital. Um,
2: Why is this all sounding so familiar? Well... Have we talked about this before? This this exact... Sp- I just had a huge deja vu of the pills so. and the kicking the cop no. in the ass. I just had a huge deja vu. Okay, anyways, <laughs>
3: continue. Got to find out who else did that. Mm-hmm. Um, this place isn't as scary. She has privileges here. She can leave when she feels like it, so it's not so strict. This is like... May, a place maybe she can get better so the stories are pretty sad though one of her friends said that she carried around an old scrapbook and she would show patients like look I'm the Edie Sedgwick and you know she's she's still feeling the need to be the center of attention and she's always making a scene if people weren't make, paying attention to her and um, yeah she had that constant desperate need for affection as well uh, apparently she did talk about Warhol in that time and she did have a lot of anger there and Edie actually ends up hooking up with this biker named Preacher at this point, and she leaves the hospital, and for a while she tries to fit in with this biker gang, and she really just still sounds so lost trying to find a family like that she can belong to, and um, interestingly enough, even these bikers get this urge to save edie from herself and they're trying to keep her away from drugs and trying to protect her and but it just becomes such a job for everyone around her that like it's too consuming and they they, none of them can deal with it after a certain amount of time in the summer of 1970 she goes back into the hospital um this is when david wiseman contacts her being like hey how about this film chow manhattan like we've got some more money now Let's finish what we started. So they decide to come to California and shoot new material with her in an attempt to kind of piece together the plot line and finish this film. Edie got permission from her doctors and had some nurses around to kind of keep an eye on her while the film completed. Before filming commenced, Edie gets these breast implants, which apparently one of the nurses encouraged her to do. Which is disgusting. Yeah. She's so proud of them, in fact, that she spends the majority of the film topless she's just topless for no reason
2: of chow manhattan yes and is that in chow manhattan yes. yeah. that sounds awful not only
3: that but she kind of she's slurring you can tell you can it it really feels it, it feels wrong watching it i it mean does.
2: for like for a good while there i was like oh i'm like looking forward to watching this yeah. and now i'm like i don't want to see that because that sounds devastating like really exploit. Exploitative, yeah, and a- like you said it feels like wrong because yeah. nobody in their right mind you know mm. would do something like that I mean it's it's one thing to be proud of your body and to go topless and like yeah. that's a whole other issue but to be doing it on film after getting implants after you've had all of this like time in the hospital yeah oh, and you can that tell she's awful. you can tell
3: she's out of it you, why did really they do can. that
2: why did I like I thought they were her friends making this movie no
3: not really. Um, oh, God. And apparently, yeah, her dad used to, like, make fun of her for being, like, you know, having no boobs and stuff. So, I guess, like, oh, she, also that there's that psychological thing. And um,
2: This she, is horrifying. I know, it's awful.
3: Shooting went from okay to terrible, but, like, pretty quick. Edie started taking more drugs and drinking. I guess she was great at sneaking out or these nurses just did not give a shit. Uh, she really made it difficult for them to film, and she's messed up all the time. They're taping her conversations, and she they use that as, like, um, voiceover for the film, to like the narration of the film. Um, by the end of the shoot, it would take hours to get literally, like, one line shot correctly. David Wiseman says, I screamed in her ear so that... I became so hoarse that within the hour, I couldn't talk. I was locking, it was a locking of horns. She was stronger than me. She broke me. I was determined, but she won. Somehow she got the notion that when we finished with her, that the film, sorry, and that with the film done, we were going to throw her away like a dish rag. So she did a song and dance those last nights so that we'd have to keep shooting the film forever, trying to get it right so we wouldn't abandon her. So she's like getting flashbacks That's of sure. so from, like, sad. War- yeah. And it makes sense why she's being so hard. And like, she just, she knows like you're using me and you're going to throw me away when you're done. And they did end up finishing the filming and Edie ended up back in the hospital. She's there from January to June of 71. And so she's been in the hospital for like three years at this point. Pretty much. And she should not have been making a movie. No. Oh God. And at this point she is getting shock treatment. Yeah. So it's possible over 20 times in this short period. It's also possible that she did have shock period, uh, treatment during the period in New York as well. Uh, the only good thing about this period is that Edie has another man in her life who truly loves, and sticks by her. His name is Michael Post. They met while he was a patient at Cottage Hospital as well. He was an ex-junkie in recovery. Um, They were good friends while they were in the hospital but didn't start anything romantically until he had long left the hospital. Post says, I couldn't forget her. I always knew from the start that she was the girl I was going to marry. I thought I could turn her into a person who could function in society without the use of drugs and alcohol. But I was... I always had the feeling once I did, I would lose her. I was so mad about her that I had to take the chance. We'd been together on practically a 24-hour basis. I asked, would you like to get engaged? She said, yes. I said, well, you know I have no income right now. It's going to be a while before I can finish school and support us. She said, screw the support thing. After we'd been engaged for two weeks, she said, I don't want to wait any longer. So on July 24th of 1971, Edie and Michael get married and they have a big ceremony. It's held on the ranch. Edie and Michael have this great summer together. She was drug and alcohol free until she gets an ear infection. She's given antibiotics that she gets allergic to. She gets in so much pain from that that the doctors prescribed her some pills and that sort of triggered the, the addiction again. So... The night before, we're we're getting to the end here, the night before Edie dies, she goes to this fashion show and there's this party afterwards and they say that she was talking about the future and when Speed was brought up at the party, she was telling strangers like, oh, don't do it, like it's not worth it, like I've been down that road, like you don't want to go there. She was like really excited about life and trying her best, but... It's interesting. There's this woman at the table named Veronica who clearly hates Edie. And she just tears into Edie. She calls her like an ugly junkie and just all these horrible things. So this woman's so terrible to Edie that the host of the event removes this woman from, from the event. Mm-hmm. Edie and Michael get home around 1. She says she had like he says she was so down about what happened at the party and he gave her some medication which was doctor prescribed and they went to bed and when he woke up the next day he had passed away so this is november 16th 1971 the combination of the barbiturates and alcohol put her in such a deep sleep she kind of suffocated on her pillow so the coroner's report says barbiturate overdose as the final cause but she did like suffocate apparently so she never really got that chance to heal but she really was trying she was really trying she was 28 when she died um there it's not many quotes from edie talking about andy after she left that scene i can only find one she said i'm a little nervous saying anything about the artist meaning Andy, because it's kind of sticks him right between the eyes, but he deserves it. He really fucked up a great many young people's lives. And if you're curious about how Warhol took Edie's death, anytime he was ever asked about Edie, he would claim like, Oh, we were ever really close. Like I barely knew her. Like he would act so like flippant about it. Like, why are you even asking me about this? Like it's it's nothing to me type mm-hmm. of thing. Um and may I guess maybe it wasn't, I don't know, you know. And I guess he really like Warhol. Obviously, was an important factor in her life. But she had so much trauma before him. It was just like he was just another person. I guess that she probably looked at as like a savior, like like you're taking me out of this world. And then to, for him to kind of crush that dream, and yeah.
2: I mean, you said that it was a really sad story from beginning to end, and yeah. I couldn't have been prepared for that. Like, I, I really wasn't expecting a lot of that stuff, and it really is a lot. Um, and when
3: you look at her, she's, she really is such a oh. ball of light, and, like, you feel her energy even through photos. Like, mm-hmm. she's she's beautiful. You
2: want to be close to her, and, and you yeah. want
3: to no doubt if you were there you would have been one of those people trying to save her you know yep they all wanted to help her but they all kind of realized there's no helping her she's gotta figure that out on her own and unfortunately because of all the drugs she never got really a a chance to uh to grow out of that
2: yeah yeah Thank you for presenting a beautiful story. And And everyone
3: should pick up, especially Jean Stein's book on Edie. It's just so good. It's written, it's like an oral history. All these people, you recognize all the names. They're the ones telling the story of how they remember her. And it's really beautiful. And they do a good job of showing the light and the dark. And, you know, Edie was a flawed, flawed human being. She wasn't perfect. She did things that, you know... You wouldn't like someone to do to you, but that's her story. But, yeah. but she was also beautiful and good. like she was a well rounded person, like we all are, you know, good mm-hmm. sides, bad sides. They really do a great job of making her come to life in that book.
2: Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for the research that you did and the way that you presented it. Um, yeah. that was. And look her up story. on YouTube.
3: Um, if you look up like Chow Manhattan on YouTube. There are good elements in that movie. A lot of like the New York scene stuff it, that those images will give you an idea of the, the world that she lived in there. It's really this stuff they filmed in California that that's like most heartbreaking. Yeah. But there are some like good shots and you can hear some voiceover of her talking about that time and stuff. So anyone who wants to like look more into that, check out it on YouTube. Thanks.
2: And thank you everybody for listening. Let us know uh, what you thought about the episode and we'll be back with you next week for another episode of Muses and Stuff. Thank you. Bye.
1: Wait. The excitement doesn't end there As we bid farewell to Season 1 We are thrilled to announce the launch of Season 2 Get ready for more gripping narratives More unforgettable characters And more mesmerizing performances That will keep you on the edge of your seat We have some big surprises coming The Force will definitely be with you So stay tuned, stay engaged And most importantly, stay excited From all of us at the Table Read Podcast Thank you, and let's make Season 2 Even more memorable together